0: Previously on Rifa'enu, Prayer, Sphira, and Healing from Trauma. We started the series with the question, how can we understand the Shmonesrei blessing of Rifa'enu, especially in this scary world of sickness and pandemic? And we said to understand that, we have to look at the story that Rifa'enu brings us to, the very end of the Exodus, the splitting of the sea and the bitter waters of Mara. If you haven't listened yet, go back to the first two episodes before continuing, but if you did listen, here's a quick reminder. We listed a bunch of questions about that strange story. Like, what's with the godly commercial for following law? What does it have to do with bitter waters? What does it have to do with the tree in the water? How is God healing them by not inflicting them with sickness? And lots more. And a good place to start is to try and determine just what was that sickness. Israel seems to be afraid of getting sick, afraid of God making them sick. And not just of any sickness, but the kind of sickness God once gave to Egypt. If we can figure out this mysterious sickness that the Israelites and Mara were worried about getting and that God had once placed upon Egypt, we can figure out just how God was their healer. So this episode begins with Rabbi Foreman sharing a clue with me about what this sickness was. That clue, he suggests, is bitterness. Somehow, when the Israelites taste those bitter waters, they're worried. Maybe they'll get sick. Sick with what? We don't know. But let's follow the breadcrumbs of those bitter waters and see where they lead.
1: Now, let's just get a little bit granular about that. They can't drink it because it's bitter. So imagine what's happening. You're taking this water and you're trying to ingest it. But instead of ingesting it, you're, you're gagging on the water, really. It's inciting this gag reflex. So the walls of your throat are sort of closing together. And you're splitting the water out as if the water is painful or poisonous or something like that. And we even raised this issue that maybe it's not even true. Maybe it's just in their heads. But one of the reasons it might be in their heads is because somebody just experienced something like this. Who just gagged on water? I mean, how were the Egyptians destroyed, right? They weren't destroyed through Mm. through hailstones coming from the sky. They weren't Mm -hmm. destroyed through javelins thrown by the Almighty from his holy throne. This is how they were destroyed. They drowned. They just drowned right Mm -hmm. and and when you drown what happens the last thing that happens is you you involuntarily take in water your throat closes you gag on the water so is there some connection the israelites they might be happy that their enemies were just destroyed but it doesn't seem coincidental that the way they were destroyed Hmm. was through something that the people of israel can't do now which was drink water there was this gag reflex and that doesn't seem coincidental now it doesn't seem to answer everything But I guess it does take me to another place, which is like, let's trace this idea backwards in the text. Mara, a moment when people can't drink waters and there's a gag reflex, which is incited. Before that, the Egyptians at the sea, a moment when other people can't drink waters and there's this gag reflex that's incited. Can you go back even further to an earlier moment where someone couldn't drink waters Because of a gag reflex that was incited.
0: Yeah, this is, I think, Makadam, the very first of the plagues, right? The water turns to blood and the Egyptians can't drink it. It's gross.
1: Because that's gross. What (laughs) if there was this, what if the river was blood and you tried to drink it? What would happen if you tried to drink it? Yeah, you'd gag. You'd gag. That was the first moment where this happened. And isn't that interesting? It's the very first of the plagues. It's the touchstone of all the plagues. It's where the plagues mm-hmm. begin, right? Mm-hmm. And now come back to what God says, kol machala lo All of the sickness that I placed upon Egypt, I will not place upon you. Isn't it interesting that the Egyptians were faced twice with the very same thing that Israel's struggling with, the very first moment of the plagues and the very last moment. The first mm-hmm. moment was blood. The last moment was the splitting of the sea. In each case they had this gag reflex when it came to water. And in the first case, they they drowned, but they couldn't drink the water. In the second place, not mm-hmm. only could they not drink the water and they were gagging, they actually died because of it. And now Israel, when that circle comes complete, all of a sudden it's almost as if there's something in their head that's scaring them about this. And God's like reassuring them that this machla, I won't impose upon you. So could, here's an interesting tentative possibility, could the machala, the sickness that God placed upon Egypt, could that be a reference to makadam, the first of these plagues? And the fascinating thing about that, by the way, it's actually the language of the text itself. The language of the text is, lo yachlu lishtot mayimimara ki They can't drink the water from mara And emu, the amazing thing is, is that that exact, piece of language, lo yachlu lishtot, right? They couldn't drink from the waters. It's, it's a very unusual phrase in, in Chumash. The only other time it appears is actually with the plague of blood when God actually uses that exact same phrase in the Torah to describe the Egyptians' inability to drink the water. Lo yachlu lishtot ni mei me ha The Egyptians couldn't drink from the waters of the yor. So it really does seem to be the case that the maḥala that god placed in egypt i.e their inability to drink the water of the nile a strain of that is that which is afflicting the people now and is which god is reassuring them somehow about that god would never somehow afflict them with that and that by extension perhaps somehow the water is okay
0: so is that it did we find the machla this mysterious sickness egypt was gagging on the blood at Makatam, the plague of blood they gag and drown at the splitting of the sea and lo and behold, very next story, Israel's gagging on some water. So they're worried. Maybe they're getting the makhla of Egypt, the makhla of bitter, undrinkable waters. Right,
1: But I still wouldn't call that a makhla, right? It's not like a sickness. in The, like a, the definition of a sickness is something that it afflicts me, right? Not something in the environment, right? Now, there's like if, if I come to a mushroom and I can't eat the mushroom because it's poisonous, I may be stuck because I'm hungry, but we don't say I'm sick. We say there's a problem with the mushroom, there's not a problem
0: with me. Hey, narrator Emu cutting in just to explain what's about to happen. Rabbi Foreman just suggested bitterness is the clue that helps us find the mysterious illness we're in search of. But as he just said, it can't be that bitterness, or the undrinkability of the water, is a sickness. Sicknesses affect people, not things. But remember, in our last episode, we suggested that maybe the waters were not bitter, but that the people were. They were bitter. Does they mean water, or does it mean people? And if it means people, well, people can get sick. Rabbi Foreman goes on to suggest that the ambiguity itself is a sort of sickness. Bitter waters, bitter people, all at the same time. Let me bring you back to our conversation.
1: But here's the really cool thing. The reason why the ambiguity is there is because at some level, as strange as it may sound, both are true. The people are bitter and the waters are bitter. And you might say, that makes no sense. It's one or the other. Either the people are bitter or the waters are bitter. I want to suggest that no, the ambiguity suggests that both are true. And by the way, I'll I'll prove to you that both are true. Let's just put on our very rational thinking cap for a moment. Emu, look at the story of Mara for a moment. From the story of Mara as you know it, can you give me an indication? from the text, that the waters really were bitter, that this was an objective phenomenon?
0: Um, I think I can. I think my strongest evidence would be from what happens to the waters on, on the other side, which is uh, in verse 25, God makes the waters sweet. It's so, vayimtuku ha it doesn't exactly. say vayimtuku ha-people, because the waters were sweeter.
1: Exactly, right? So clearly the waters were afflicted right because you can't make the water sweet if the waters were never bitter it's clearly an issue with the waters okay great but now let me ask you the flip side of that looking at the story of Mara can you give me any evidence from the text that the issue wasn't in the waters that the issue was in the people
0: well other than the ambiguity of the word Kimarim Other than Haim. the
1: ambiguity of Kimarim. Haim. Kimarim Haim is our theory that there's this ambiguity. But what about the very last thing that God says? God says, I'm not going to place the sickness of Egypt upon you because I am God your healer. God seems to mm-hmm. position himself as your healer, not the mm-hmm. healer of these waters your healer mm-hmm. what does healing the right. waters with the miracle have to do with me being your healer oh yeah unless that's, you were sick that's a
0: great proof <laughs> that's actually a really good it proof,
1: is, right he just got mm-hmm. the very last words of the text god can't portray himself as a, a medical doctor if i was never right.
0: sick he could say i, I got him your provider you're a strong uh, miracle worker, but he doesn't do that. He actually says, I'm your healer.
1: God says, I'm your healer. Evidently, there's something wrong with you. On the one hand, there was something wrong with the people. God healed them. On the other hand, there was something wrong with the water. But those two things contradict themselves. Whatever the answer to how there could be a quality which is both subjective and objective, like the bitterness of the uh, of these waters or the bitterness of the people, it seems to me that exactly the same conundrum, faces us with the very first plague visited upon Egypt, what might well be the machla of Mitzrayim, the story of blood. Let me play the same game with you. Emu, the water turned to blood. Can you give me an indication of why I might think that that's a subjective phenomenon, that the water wasn't really blood, that it might have been a trick, That the Egyptians' minds were playing upon them, almost like they were sick, that they had some perception that they couldn't drink the water, but objectively the water was fine. Given what you know about the plague of blood, is there any indication from the data that might indicate it's all subjective?
0: Sure, the text doesn't say it explicitly, but the Medrash tells us that when the Egyptians would drink from the waters of the Nile, it was blood for them. But when an Israelite would go to drink, it was water for them. Exactly. Now, the Medrash, I think, isn't pulling that from thin air. It would sort of be like a self-defeating miracle for God to plague the Nile with blood and then force the Israelites to drink blood. The sages are filling in the blanks. They're letting us know that this plague miraculously affected only the Egyptians while leaving the waters untouched for the Israelites.
1: Right. I mean, like, that is what subjective is, right? One way of saying it is there was this miracle, right, that God, like, quickly changed the waters. If there was an Israel drinking it, God changed it into water. And once the Egyptians came, God changed it back into blood, and they kept on flitting back and forth. Or you could say, uh, a more basic way of saying it is that, no, it was water, right? The Egyptians perceived it as blood. And the mm-hmm. Egyptians might even be in a position to be able to come to understand that there's something wrong with their minds. Because Mm -hmm. when they look and see their Israelite neighbors drinking from the water, what are they going to think? I mean, they have to contend with that. Right. Maybe this is all in my head, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's an indication that there is a subjective quality to the problem Mm -hmm. of the water and the plague of blood. Now, given all the data that you know about the story of the blood, if I'm an Egyptian looking at this, what is the contradictory indication from the data? That, no, it's an objective quality. This isn't in my head. It's actually blood. Let's go back into the text and
0: explore it. And they, they change all the water in the Nile into blood. Oh, wow. This is, okay, there you go. The fish in the Nile die. And the, uh, the Nile becomes putrid and, and stinky. In Egypt could not drink water from the Nile. OK, I see your point. Yeah,
1: so if I am Joe Egyptian, so on the one hand, I'm thinking, how are those Israelites drinking the water? This is all in my head. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, but the fish are dead, right? If the fish are dead, it's obviously a quality of the water. So which is it? Sure. I mm-hmm. literally have contradictory indications from the data, which is to say I can't figure it out. I don't mm-hmm. know. How did the Israelites drink the water? Clearly it's subjective. How did the fish die? Clearly it's objective. And it's the same thing that happened at Mara, right? How does God portray himself as a healer? Clearly it was subjective. I had a problem. Yeah, but if I had a problem, how come you throw the stick in the water, to Tukomayim, and the waters get better? It's not about the waters, it's about me. It, the data contradicts themselves. I'm arguing the text is going out of its way to create a subjective, objective, mind-bending moment for us where Mm -hmm. the reader and probably the participants in the story can't figure it out.
0: The Israelites
1: Mm -hmm. and Mara can't figure it out. The Egyptians at the Plague of Blood can't figure it out. It is inherently ambiguous. It's a great $64,000 question. How do we make sense of the Schrodinger's cat? In life, things can't be subjective or objective. It's a binary choice. It's one or the other. But the fact that it is both, in both cases, seems to suggest that we might be onto something when we say the machla asher Loasi, loassimalecha was the plague of blood, right? God mm-hmm. it seems to be saying, I get you Israelites, you're afflicted about something. It's almost the same thing as the Egyptians were afflicted. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to inflict that upon you. That was them, not you. And all of a sudden, that's starting to make more sense this notion of a sickness, right? We asked before, the plagues were plagues, they weren't sicknesses, but maybe some of them were, right? Specifically- So you're saying
0: the sickness isn't bitter waters or bloody waters, it's actually the ambiguity surrounding the waters? Like in Egypt, the plague was blood, but the machla was the mind game. It's like the Egyptians were asking, is this water blood? It looks like blood, tastes like blood, even the fish are dying. But the Israelites are able to drink this? It's not blood for them? Uh, I need to sit down. I've lost my grip on reality. That's the sickness of the Egyptians, the sickness of ambiguity in blood. And the mind games seem to come back up in Mara. So the people are afraid. The ambiguity, like, is the water bitter? Am I bitter? And then even worse, Egypt has the same ambiguity around the blood. Does that mean God is thinking of us the way he thought of Egypt? And that's when God needs to come in, clarify things and say, nope, nope, you are in Egypt. I am your healer. So in putting together the puzzle pieces around Rifainu, around Mara, it feels like it's a start. We don't fully understand the sickness, this mind game, but we know it has something to do with Egypt's experience of blood. And somehow, Israel is experiencing ambiguity too in Mara. But we don't know why they're experiencing ambiguity. Did they come upon bitter waters or not? Why, in some sense, do they feel like they were bitter? We need just a bit more backstory. I think we can get that backstory by way of our heroine, Miriam, a woman whose name, as we said in the last episode, means bitter waters.
1: We had noticed that, you know, strangely, the reason why they can't drink the waters is because they're bitter, mem re mem, that echoes not two or three verses before Miriam's name. But if I asked you, when is the first moment in the Torah when you, the reader, know Miriam's name?
0: I would say probably when she's, when she's following her, her brother in the uh, the Teva, uh, in a little basket at the water, I'm assuming that's where she's called Miriam.
1: Right, that's what you would think. So take a look. The the little basket gets put in the water. Chapter 2, verse 4. <speaking in Spanish> His sister stood from afar to see what would happen to him. Which sister? Don't know anything about her. Along comes the daughter of uh, Pharaoh, and she sees the Teva and the Suf. She sends her maidservant takes the teva, opens it, sees the child, uh, has compassion upon it, says it's a Hebrew child. Again, vatomer achoto, not Miriam. His sister said to Mm -hmm. the daughter of Pharaoh, should I find a nursemaid from the Hebrews to let you nurse the child? Vatomer Paro, the daughter of Pharaoh, said, go do it. So isn't it fascinating then that the very first time that we actually discover who this girl is is actually years later at the Song of the Sea. When she just happens to decide to take these women out, that's when I hear that her name is Miriam. Three verses before, that name becomes Mariam. Why would she be named for Mariam, bitter water, right? Mm -hmm. A bitter, great body of water. How do we understand that? And connected to that, why are the people so bitter? And does that have something to do with the plague of blood? So let me put that question to you.
0: Yeah, so that that to me is, is like a really, really strong clue, right? Why would her parents have named her Bitter Water? What story that sends me to is the occasion of her birth, right? So what was Egypt like for her and her parents when she was born? And I, I can't help but think of the, the edict of Pharaoh of throwing babies into the Nile. Like that would make the waters pretty bitter to the Israelites, I would imagine.
1: Yeah. So why would you name a kid, bitter, vast waters. It's almost like it's the experience of Yocheved, mother of Moshe, and why mm-hmm. would she have named a child that? And and when you put yourself in her shoes, it becomes obvious. And by the way, let's even do this according to the way the sages understood it. One of the questions which you asked as we were going to the story is why we meet Miriam and she's introduced in the strange way that she is. She's introduced as the sister of Aaron and not the sister of Moshe. She's introduced as a prophetess. Why is it important for her song at the sea that she be introduced those ways? And the sages, of course, take up those exact issues in a fascinating midrashic comment, which they make, or series of comments that they make. And they say, in essence, that if you want to understand why Miriam sang at the sea, you have to understand two things about her. The very two things that the Torah gives by way of an introduction to her. A, she was a prophetess. And B, she was, the, she her prophecy concerned Something that happened when she was a little girl, when she was only the sister of Aaron, because Moshe had not yet been born. And they go back to the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. And they suggest that Amram and Yochev, the parents of Moshe, had separated. They separated for the same reason that anybody might be tempted to separate. Why bring children into a world when the children are just going to be cast into the Nile? And in that world, along came Miriam, this little girl, their daughter with a prophecy. And their prophecy, as the sages tell it, is, Atida Imi, my mother is destined to give birth to the Savior of Israel. And um, she came and told them this, and Amram and Yocheva got back together and they had this child. Batara Isha And the child was born. Now, that itself is already dark. She hides him for three months. Now, why does she have to hide him for three months? What's going on that she's hiding him for three months? Right? Answer is they're living in a time of genocide. Egyptian stormtroopers are outside the house listening for the cries of babies. It ain't easy keeping a newborn quiet. And the stormtroopers gather and get closer until verse three, no, she just could not hide him anymore. And at that point, she places the child in this little boat and she places it in the reeds at the side of the river. Now, what's interesting here is that, you know, from her standpoint, what was that little box, right? If you would ask, rationally speaking, if you can't hide the child anymore, again, inhabit her shoes, what are you thinking and what are you feeling when you can't hide the child anymore and you put them in that little box? Because the question is, if you had hope, what would you do? So the great anguished question is, could you watch what happened next? And it's clear from the text mm. that she doesn't, mm.
0: right? She walks away. Wow. Wow. That's really chilling.
1: Right. Which means what was that little box?
0: It was a coffin.
1: It was a coffin. The last little chesed that she could do for this little baby is at least give him a little box that he wouldn't just be hurled into the Nile. And it's a terrible, terrible moment. And in that moment, think now about this name that Miriam gets, right? Bitter, bitter waters. If you were Yocheva, as you look out at the vast waters of the Nile, right? What are those waters? They're terribly bitter, Let's transport ourselves back to that moment when Yocheved gives Miriam that name, right? There's something bittersweet about her birth, right? What are you feeling if you're Yocheved and you're naming this daughter, uh, you know, Miriam, Mariam?
0: Yeah, on the one hand, your your daughter is safe and you can feel jubilant. Oh, thank God I didn't have to go through the, the horrible tragedy of a child being tossed into the river. On the other hand, perhaps out of solidarity with uh, the other women of Israel, or perhaps just the anguish of nine months of not knowing what might happen to your child, you can't express your joy and say, you know, this one was, was saved. You name her bitter water.
1: Yeah. Which is that here's this birth and this sense of relief that washes over you that this is a girl and thank God I don't have to worry and it's okay. And yet the waters are bitter and, and she's bitter So she becomes Miriam, Mariam. And now let's actually pull back the Zoom lines a little bit. It doesn't seem coincidental that bitterness is the adjective that shows up in Miriam's name. That it's bitterness that would describe the anguish of these women. If you think about that word Mariam, bitterness, in the larger context of the Exodus, what does it remind you of? When else does the text play with that adjective?
0: Well, there's Vayamaruat Chayehem, Bava Da Kasha, Ubalvinim. This is um, Pharaoh, right at the beginning of Exodus, uh, embitters the lives of the uh, Israelites through crushing labor.
1: And think about that. That it means that the one adjective to describe the Israelite experience in Egypt under oppression is bitterness. Isn't that interesting? That here are these people after the exodus. And of all things, they're bitter. And what had we experienced for 400 years? It's almost as if the the embittered lives because of work also transmuted itself into a kind of bitterness, at least in the case of Miriam and Moshe, with the waters and the Nile and the death of these children. And now, years later, when everyone is, is saved, somehow The people are now experiencing bitterness. As if there's something sick, there's something that's afflicted this people. There is a profound psychological wound that expresses itself in these embittered lives. And maybe this gets back to the notion of the last great act of the Exodus drama, that it's not enough for the story to end the way the Prince of Egypt ends with the grand victory at the sea, right? That would be like saying that the story, uh, you know, to borrow a modern analogy, the story of the end of the Holocaust ended when Buchenwald was liberated and Auschwitz was Mm -hmm. liberated. That's when the movie Mm -hmm. ends. But anybody who was there, if you read the first person accounts of the soldiers who liberated those camps, know that the story wasn't over the day that the camps were liberated. Because it's one thing to have the victory over mm-hmm. the foe. It's one thing to watch the Germans vanquished, but that doesn't heal you. Victory is one thing, but after victory, you need healing. And it was the same mm-hmm. thing maybe for the Israelites. They had mm-hmm. victory at the sea, but it wasn't over. Those scars continued. to- Just to add
0: become. a dimension to this, it reminds me of something you once said to me that really stuck with me. And you asked me this question, you said, what, what is the worst thing- the egyptians ever did to the israelites and i said well they made them slaves they were slaves for for you know many many years It's terrible and you're like no that that's not the worst thing what was the worst thing and and you said it, it was the fact that the the egyptians threw the the israelite babies into the into the water and you asked me something that that again should be so obvious why did they do that why didn't they just kill them why didn't they you know use their swords or whatever and you and in a really creepy way i remember it in my voice he <laughs> said what happens when you throw a baby into the water and you answered nothing you don't see anything the water changes not a whit it's just water your suggestion was that the egyptians did not want to dig mass graves it's a it's a really unpleasant business controlling a population explosion by you know digging these mass graves and going around killing babies the egyptian populace can't handle that The Israelite population can't handle that. And so you deal with it in this quiet, insidious way. You kill the child, and the evidence is gone, vanished. The river looks just the way it did the day beforehand. And the trauma that that must have been for the Israelites, where they're losing their children and you can go around and ask a neighbor and say did you see this this injustice that was done to me and and they can say what well, what do you mean what what crime there's no evidence we don't see anything there's no there's no issue there's no corpse and that this nile which is the the source of your sustenance the source of your water the source of of life for egypt becomes this great source of death and the source of trauma for for the israelites its bitter waters indeed mm-hmm. and what hit me was What a sign it was indeed for God to actually begin with the plague of blood, to say, this water that everybody else thinks is water, I know is really blood. It's the blood of your children. It's the trauma that Egypt has put you through. I see it for what it is, and I will make Egypt face it.
1: Mm -hmm. I will make Egypt face it, and I will help you understand that I get it. Because part of the strategy of Pharaoh, in a certain way was to play mind games with us. The nights are full of screams in the morning, there's Egyptians jogging on the path by the Nile, and everything looks normal, and we think that we're crazy. It's as if nature itself is conspiring against us. And that was the very first mind game that was insidiously placed before us by Pharaoh. And I would even argue that it was an extension of the bitterness of Vayimaru at Baba Babadakasha, let me show you something mm-hmm. that, that suggests that in the text itself, right? Let's go back to that phrase, that signal phrase for slavery, et ba'avodah kasha, because there's something strange about this, right? On the one hand, we're arguing that here is Miriam, named for Mariam, who may have experienced a kind of bitterness about the waters. And yet, strangely, the way bitterness is first described, it has nothing to do with waters, it has to do with slavery. And how do you bridge that? So there's a very interesting textual cascade, as it were. Let's go back to that phrase. Where is it? There, va'yumaru et chayem bavadakasha. That would be back in Exodus chapter one. What bothered Pharaoh? What bothered Pharaoh was verse seven. Yisrael paru va'yirbu maod, and Israel became mighty. They became huge in numbers, this population explosion, and the the land was full of them. And at that point, there was a new king upon Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he says to his people, the people of Israel are too great for us. Let's deal wisely with them. Now, apparently Pharaoh is so smart. We're going to deal wisely with him. But, Imu, I want to suggest to you that there's two really stupid things that Pharaoh does, right? You're a pharaoh what's your problem? A great population explosion. Now, Pharaoh has kind of a three-stage plan, right? Stage one, slavery. Stage two, tell the midwives to kill the baby boys. Stage three, throw the baby boys in the Nile. Now, I understand stages two and three, they directly address the population explosion. Brutal, but I understand it. It gets rid of people. But number one is about economics, right? If the population explosion is what I'm worried about, It doesn't directly address that to enslave them. That's that's strange Mm -hmm. thing, part one. Strange thing, part two, is if I was worried about a population explosion, if I was going to segment it by gender, I sure as heck wouldn't kill the boys. I'd kill the girls. I mean, Mm -hmm. girls are that which makes the children, right? So why does Pharaoh Mm -hmm. do exactly the opposite? He doesn't seem seem smart. He seems stupid. Why does he begin with slavery? Why does he only attack the boys? Let's mm-hmm. keep on reading. So here comes Pharaoh. He says, <laughs> I'm worried about this people. I think that they're going to, to grow even stronger, this exponential growth, and they're going to gang up against us. So here's what we're going to do. He goes and he makes these taskmasters and they build these storehouses for Pharaoh. And we read in verse 13, And here we get to, And they embittered their lives with terrible work. Now, the first thing I have to tell you is looking at the verse right before that. The word farach, which is the particular type of slavery, slavery that was avodat perach, Rashi translates that word in an interesting kind of way. Rashi says that that word needs to be seen as related to the Hebrew word to crumble. And Rashi mm-hmm. says avodah hamefarechet et aguf. It was mm-hmm. work that crumbled the body. Which means, if you take the, the horrific implications of Rashi's statement, that deep down there wasn't really an economic rationale for this work. It wasn't about pyramids. Mm-hmm. It was about working people to death. It was about mm-hmm. grinding them down until there was nothing left. So you mm-hmm. say to yourself, well, why didn't you just start with genocide? Why even start with this? I mean, why pretend it's about work? And Mm -hmm. here, I mean, I just keep on thinking about the Holocaust, right? For the same reason the Nazis did it. For them, it wasn't about work either. Right. When push came to shove, it wasn't about the uniforms that the that the slaves could, be, could, could make. They were willing to divert the trains to the gas chambers. They were willing to put everything into killing the people and even to destroy their own economy in doing it. So why pretend it's about work? And I think the answer is that's the way you co-opt a populace. A vulnerable populace can be co-opted to become participants of the genocide scheme if you give them false hope, if you Mm -hmm. say to them, Arbeit macht frei, at the gates Mm. of the killing case, right? Because what does Arbeit macht frei tell you when you're getting in? It's false hope. And if Mm -hmm. I just am a good soldier, and if I just work hard enough, things will be okay. And Mm -hmm. nobody wants to look death in the eye. And because we don't want to look death in the eye, we'll tell ourselves lies. We'll cling Mm -hmm. to this hope that no, maybe it is about economics. Maybe Pharaoh just wants his pyramids. But it was never Mm -hmm. about work. And this is the first ruthless, wickedly smart thing that Pharaoh does to be able to co-opt the populace into his genocidal scheme. But it doesn't work. Mm. And the people still keep on reproducing. And we read that The more he oppressed them, the more the population exploded. Continued, so Mm -hmm. he had to go to Plan B, but Plan B also continued with something surreptitious, right? It was a secret command to the mialdot to kill the children, and then a secret command to the people to throw the babies in the Nile, when the Nile would cover over the crimes. But here's the textual cascade. That language, and they embittered, the Egyptians did, the lives of the people. That language is a description of stage one in Pharaoh's genocidal scheme. But as you get to stages two and three, you hear a residual from yamaru at Hayahem. Now listen to stage two. He tells the midwives, When you give birth to the children, and you see them on the stones, a baby boy, kill it. Vimbati, but if it's a daughter, then allow it to live, which is fascinating. That word to live—that's an mm-hmm. interesting word, isn't it? Because in stage one, what did Pharaoh do? Vayimaru et and now imbati was the second word from that phrase. Vayimaru et and now there's a daughter who's living. And what happens next? Stage three. Any little baby that the boy throw him in the water of a but any daughter, tichayun, same word, allow her to live. And now here's the deviousness in Pharaoh's plan. What was he really doing? Just do the, the algebra and the text. Vayemaru et Chayehem a stage one. They embittered the Chai, that which is living, right, our lives. But then what was the Vayimaru at chayehem in stage two, and stage three? It's almost like it was there. The cascade is the Chai keeps on going from stage one to stage two to stage three. So what was embittered in stage two? What was embittered in stage three? Who was embittered? The women. The, in Stage one, what was embittered? That which was Chai. In stage two and stage wow. three, what was embittered? That which was high. Who was high? The women. It was all an attack against the women. It was a concerted attack upon the fertility of femininity. Pharaoh had a problem. How do I get a hold of this exponential growth curve? How do I destroy fertility? I destroy fertility through this evil thing, right? This allowing the women to live, but what kind of life? A bitter, bitter life. Any woman who's born is celebrated, but yet bitterness is the only thing that women can that the parents or siblings can think about. And hence, who is Miriam, the symbol of all these women? Mariam, just the bitter, bitter waters, and what's that gonna do to fertility? right? Are you really going to have children in a world in which if it's, in which you roll the dice? And if it's the wrong gender, the child gets thrown into the river. So here's the bitterness uh, that Pharaoh sought to impose upon us. Now, when Pharaoh did impose this upon us, one of the evil things he did was he took the greatest natural resource of Egypt and turned it into our enemy. You talked about it before when you said the waters, waters are a source of life. And Pharaoh makes them into death water but the real trick is is not not only does pharaoh make it into death water pharaoh makes it into maybe it's death water maybe it's not death water pharaoh plays games with our heads because we don't know if it's really mm. true was it uh, the children really happened did it not really happen so let's break it apart anymore for a second put yourself in the shoes of a woman at that moment witnessing this carnage all around the rational side of you why might you not want to have children
0: that situation. I don't want to face a situation where if I have a, a child as a boy that they'd be thrown into the Nile.
1: Yeah, perfectly rational. What good is it, you might even say, to have children if they might die? It's rational to just not invest now. There'll be a time for children, but not now. Mm-hmm. But let's put all that aside. Let's get to the irrational thing that you can't explain. But just the feeling that you have. Why is it that you just can't even think of having children now? Why is it that the notion of fertility, of fostering new life, is just something I, that almost is bitter, that almost like a gag when I think about that. I just can't bring myself. Why would you not do that? Why would you just not, not have yourself a little girl? As you're
0: saying, I think it's more than just the fear of facing it with a boy. It's just, what does life look like if you have a, a little girl? I, I imagine, what are you going to do? You're going to have a, a simchat bat, you're going to have a party and everyone will come and say oh mazel tov on your new baby how how can you face the rest of the community that's losing their sons you'd be racked with guilt with the fact that you have yes. this daughter and and they've they have nothing they've lost their child
1: yeah and that's a wonderful analogy right think about that joy that you have upon having that little girl that you rolled the dice and you got lucky how could you experience that joy when Nancy next door is is crying her eyes out for the child that was ripped from her arms and thrown into the Nile? And what feeling do you have? And you pegged it, I think correctly, as guilt. I don't have a right to be happy. I can't be happy at a time like this. And this was Pharaoh's evil, diabolical scheme. Take the happiest things in life. What is happier than the moment of childbirth? I don't think you can put it into words for a woman or for a man. There's just nothing more ecstatic. And it doesn't feel like you should deserve to be able to have that in a world when my neighbors are crying, in a world where I cried for the child that didn't make it. I just don't feel like I should deserve to have it. And that's irrational. I didn't do anything wrong, right? I'm doing something good. I'm having a child, but we don't work that way. We feel saddled by this irrational guilt. It was all part of the plan. So here comes God. And God says, you know what the first of the plagues are? I'm going to take water and I'll play with their minds. And they won't be able to drink it. You know why? Because the water is blood. Now, why would the water blood? And let's come back to the Schrodinger's cat mm-hmm. issue, right? That issue of how could it be? Is it subjective or is it objective? Mm-hmm. When God made the water blood, was it really blood or wasn't it blood? And the answer is Maybe it was kind of both. It starts subjective and becomes objective. And and what is it really? The subjective side of it is guilt. Mm -hmm. God says, you weaponized guilt. You took guilt and turned it into a weapon against fertility. I, too, will weaponize guilt against you. But I will weaponize real guilt. And you weaponized fake guilt. Mm My people, Israel, had nothing to be guilty of, and you forced them into a sense that the mere fact that they survived was something that they should feel terrible about and That's how you chose to go against them. Well, Egypt, in following orders, if you try to go to bed at night and assuage your guilt by saying, "I was just doing what any self-respecting Egyptian would mm-hmm. do, you can't escape guilt; the water is blood. here it is. the crime is staring you in the face for all to see and the Israelites are drinking it. Why? And you're not even sure. Is it really true or isn't it true? The same mind games you played with water, the mind games are being played with you. But the guilt is so strong, so powerful, I would argue, that it's as if it manifests itself objectively true. It starts as a subjective reality in the mind of the Egyptians and almost bleeds, you'll pardon the pun, into objective Mm -hmm. reality that the fish become poisoned. It is a uh, subjective phenomenon that is so powerful that it begins to affect the objective world. And this is the Egyptian experience of blood. And later, it becomes our experience at Mara.
0: So just to put a lid on things, we started off this episode searching for the Mahla. We said we couldn't understand just how God is our healer if we don't know what the sickness is. And our clue was the bitterness a bitterness that pointed to mind games. Mind games at Mara, because the water was bitter or the people were bitter, they gagged on the water, they couldn't drink it. And that led us to the splitting of the sea where Egypt experienced gagging, choking on the water at the sea, which also reminded us of the plague of blood and the mind games that God played on the Egyptians. Was the blood really blood? Was it water? And we've just placed the final piece of the puzzle. Why did the Egyptians experience mind games, the sickness at blood? Because they played mind games with Israel. They placed sickness upon Israel, embittering their lives with work that was meant to break them down, embittering the women, and making them sick with guilt. Miriam was the final clue that helped us fill in this backstory of the sickness. Let's go back to Mara, back to the sea, back to Miriam, and finish putting the pieces together.
1: So here you have Miriam, right? Who was she, really? Go back to that text. What does Miriam do? Her mother places her in this little box. Her mother doesn't look. Hmm. No one looks, but one person looked. It's Exodus 2, chapter 4. Mm -hmm. And she stood from afar to watch what would be with him, what would happen with him. Now, why Hmm. did she look? If you were watching the destruction of your brother, how could you do that? You can't do that. No one could do that. Especially given what you've been saying,
0: right? It's not just... Right. This isn't this isn't some some other kid they have who watches. You know, this is this is the daughter. This is the one who would be would be having the survivor's guilt more than anyone else. Right. She's the one who was spared. And she's the one who can bring herself strangely, maybe the most unlikely person. She's the one who can bring herself to look.
1: And look what that looking does. Here comes Miriam, who says, I don't know what I can do here. I feel so powerless. The girl named for Bitter Waters, she must have felt at that moment her name coming to life. What could be more bitter than that? The waters that might swallow alive my brother. But she looked anyway. Why? If you would interview her, what what do you think you're going to accomplish by looking? It's just going to make it worse for you. You think you're going to save things? You think you're going to make it all better? What power do you really have anyway? You're so powerless. But what Miriam says is, I don't care. Here's what I can do. What I can do is not let him be alone right now. What I can do is stand by him. It recalls, in a way, one of the great humane things that Israel is even doing in this in this COVID-19 thing that came out and said, you know, people shouldn't be allowed to die alone. If somebody's on their deathbed, they can have visitors, and that overrides everything else, because crisis is a time when you need accompaniment. And Miriam says, I don't know what else I can do, but I can be there with them. I can watch. And here's Miriam watching. And who should come along but the worst person in the world? The daughter of Hitler. But Miriam won't go away. She still stands and watches. What are you even thinking? And there must be a part of Miriam that says, I don't know what can be. I can't control the future, but I can control what I can do. There's a possibility. I don't care if it's the daughter of Hitler. There's still hope. Miriam had hope. And as it happened, look what she did. She becomes the one who's able to transfer that possibility of hope into actual salvation. Here's the daughter of Pharaoh. The daughter of Pharaoh opens the little box, sees the child, hears the child crying. The has compassion upon it, but even as she has compassion upon him, is caught in a quandary herself, she says it's a Hebrew child. What can I do? I'm the daughter of Pharaoh. I'm supposed to kill this child, but I have compassion on the child. Enter Miriam. Reading the indecision on her face, Miriam says, can I call a nursemaid for you? And what do you know? Suddenly, mother and child are reunited, and Moshe's got a chance of life. And Moshe becomes the savior of the Jewish people. She actualizes her prophecy, and she couldn't have predicted it. But fascinatingly, Miriam defeats Pharaoh. Here Pharaoh's designs were, I will poison the women. I will freeze them in horror. I will cause them to be inactive by virtue of the horror of Mariam, of the bitter waters. I will play with their minds. But one person was able to have the strength, power to defeat that. The girl who stood and watched and looked out at the bitter waters and would not be intimidated by them somehow had the faith that there's a God in heaven, and because of that, I can give this to God and say, Dear God, this is for you. Almost as if what Miriam was saying was defeating her Right?
0: Name. Maybe Pharaoh controls the Nile or thinks he controls the Nile, but next to the sea, the Nile is just a small river. God controls the waters, the larger waters, the entire sea. So Yam is a lie. The Yam isn't bitter. Yes,
1: there was a wow. larger body of water wow. than just the Nile right? It's God's body of water. God's water is so much larger than Pharaoh. You think Pharaoh was the ultimate power of the universe? If that's the world we live in, then then despair is the only option. But there's a larger king, and there's a larger world, and he has his waters too. That's the larger waters, and they aren't bitter. They're joyous. And here are the women.
0: The survivors.
1: The women are the survivors. And I I was talking to your mom about this, and your mom actually shared this insight with me. I think it's it's a beautiful way of reading this story. And what your mom suggested is that, why do you think the women had to sing now? The answer was because who sang the song at the sea? Evidently not the women. Mm. Only the men did. Why weren't the women singing? The answer is, who were the women? They were the embittered ones. They were the ones who more than anything felt this trauma. They were the targets of all the embitteredness. The men, yeah, they can sing right? They were the victims. They died. They never experienced the trauma. It was the women who experienced this trauma. And so they are looking at the drowning of the Egyptians and they're frozen. They're horrified. So they can't sing. And it's a vestige of what Pharaoh tried to do to them when Pharaoh tried to freeze them into inaction. And Miriam, the healer, I would suggest, comes and says, women, we can do this. I know you can't sing. I know you can't even talk. But Could you dance? Could you wordlessly take a timbrel and and a tambourine and sing? And she leads them in this wordless song, because it's all they could do. But they don't yet sing. Nothing comes from their mouths. That's stage one. Stage two is, now let me teach you the words. I know it's hard to sing. I just want to teach you one verse the verse is shurla shankivagaa susvrah for ramabayam the one verse is horse and rider have been hurled into the ocean hurled into the ocean what does that remind you of what was the trauma the trauma was you remember the babies that were hurled into the nile god has come and done something different mm-hmm. it's not our babies right it's the enemy that's been hurled and the enemy is gone and mitzvahim will never threaten us again so we can begin to recover we can speak, we can sing we could just say this it's, it's the enemy that's been destroyed it's not us and Miriam begins this process of healing it's a process of healing that starts with her and somehow I think the mystery of Mara is the continuation mm. of that process with, which ends with not just Miriam being the healer but somehow God finishing the process that Miriam
0: began. So I think we'll leave that stuff for the, our next session, but I just want to reemphasize how mind-blown I am by verses 20 and 21, which appear to be filled with double entendres. Just to answer some of our questions. This is Miriam, whose name is Bitter Water, who's now the opposite of that. Uh, She's Niviah. Her prophecy, as the sages referred to, has has now come true. The prophecy that she received when she was only Achot Aharon, when she was the sister of Aaron before Moses was born. Back then, she was the only one who was able to stand and watch what would happen to the boy she convinced her parents to conceive. She had faith salvation would come through him. And now it's all coming true. We're hearkening back to that time. The pain of that time is now being uh, redeemed or healed. She takes a tatof biada. You actually pointed out to me uh, off this podcast what that word also reminds you of tof biada. Not mm-hmm. the same letters, but the same sound. Tof and, and taf. Taf with a tet is, is mm-hmm. infants, right? So instead of taking the infants mm-hmm. uh, in hand to perhaps cast into the, to the Nile, she's taking a, a drum or a timbrel, a symbol of pain, is now a symbol of joy. Uh, and all the women follow her, right, with their tupim, with now their timbrels, and now mecholot, instead of sickness, there's dancing. Not only does she cancel out her name, she cancels out the sickness, right, so she acts the exact inverse of the circumstances of her birth. Now she's instead of being sick, she's dancing mecholot. And then vata'an lahem miriam. And that word vata'an, where she she answers them, was a question we brought up. I wonder if that's referring back to, uh, back in Exodus 1, um, where we're talking about how their lives were embittered. Um, One of the things that is said there is bahaasher yaanuoto Be. uh they, they were afflicted and so oh, the funny. affliction is is another part of the double entendre. their their suffering is now transformed into into joy into singing into into proclaiming uh, a song
1: and by the way your point here is that vataan has the iynnur of the word for the signal word for slavery which was oppression kashyer yaanuoto so almost as if the the wordless question that Miriam is answering, which you brought up earlier, what is she answering? The question was the horror mm-hmm. of the oppression, which began with the bitterness of work, but continued into the bitterness of children that just freezes you. And Miriam says, "Let me respond to that." And uh, instead of allowing oppression to freeze me into inaction, let's talk. Let's sing. Let's Mm. let's do something here. And she leads them into Mm. a response to horror rather than uh, an inability to act.
0: And the the final double entendre in this verse is once victim was hurled into the sea. Now perpetrator. uh, Now our enemy is hurled into the sea. It's really chilling. It's really incredible. What you're showing us here, but yeah. I mean. Well,
1: yeah, I, I credit your mom. By the way. I mean, she <laughs> she saw. No, really, she saw a lot of. So, you know, I think we've gotten to somewhere. Uh, I think that the question that we still have to answer is: Okay, we we've gone back to the story. We've gone all the way back to the machala that was in Mitzrayim. All the way back to the Sickness of Mitzrayim. All the way back to the children of the Nile. The story of the blood. The story of the sea as a as, as a response to that. Miriam's beginning of healing. How did the story of Mara take that one step further? How does God pick up on what what Miriam is doing and take it one more step? And it's beautiful if you think about it. God is leveraging Miriam. It's not just that God is is our healer. God is is responding to something that Miriam is doing, if we're right, and building upon it and saying, that was good. Let me take that one step further. Let me draw that out for you and show Mm -hmm. you what that really is. And somehow... How does the strange story of the tree of the water, how does the story of if you listen to my laws and all of that, if Miriam was responding to the oppression, Miriam, how is God responding to Miriam in the story of Mara?
0: Incredible stuff. And uh, I just want to keep going with you. I want to know how it answers tree in the water. But uh, I will wait with bated breath until next time. Thanks for my foreman.
1: Okay, see you then. Bye bye.
0: Hi, this is Rifki, editor for this series. Before you run off, check out AlephBeta.org for more engaging, inspiring Torah. Normally, AlephBeta is a paid site, but in these difficult times, we're making our material available for free for those who need them. So enjoy, on us. That said, if you do have the means, and if you believe in what we're doing, it would mean the world to have your support through this time. Please consider becoming a paid member, or joining our producer circle. Of course, if that isn't something you can do right now, don't think twice about it. The most important thing is for all of us to stay connected and keep our community strong.